Hello and welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast, a podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. I'm your host, Bill Bant, and along with me on this journey revisiting 80s movies is my co-host, Jason Masek. Hello, Jason. Hello, Bill Bant. Bill Bant, I'm excited, so very excited about today's episode because we have a very special guest, a beautiful, talented man. We have our great, long-time, and oft-mentioned friend, Marwan Abdurazak, joining us. Welcome, Marwan. <laughs> Very good to be here. Very excited to be here. The audience has been waiting for this moment. I think we only mention you like once every third episode, so I'm so happy to have you on. Oh, thanks, guys. Yeah, this is a real thrill, man, to be able to do this as friends and... uh I'm just excited, man. I'm yeah, super yeah. excited. I've been I've listened to just about every single episode. You know I'm your biggest fan, so it's so just I'm so jazzed and so excited to be here with you guys. All right, so why don't you tell the audience a little bit about yourself and what you're up to these days? Yeah, so a little bit about myself. Uh, let's see. Well, I originally hail from the Boston area, and of course, I went to film school with uh, Jason and Bill. And uh, let's see, I met Bill first. Bill and I lived on the same floor together, towers on the campus of the University of Miami. And um, we hit it off right away. And a little trivia, which a lot of people don't know, is Bill is actually one of the main reasons why I enrolled into the film school, because when I got to the University of Miami, I was actually a business major. And I was really, really unhappy. And uh, I spent a lot of time with Bill. And I think Bill in the end just got sick of me. And I'll never forget it. And I, I was like, Bill, I, I just, I think I need to transfer out, but I, I'm not sure. And Bill was in his room. He's like, look, just go and transfer and do it today. Okay. I'm like, okay. And then he slammed the door in my face, <laughs> but we've been friends ever since, since basically the early nineties. And I've been on my journey uh, of life with both of these guys. Um, and then through Bill, I met Jason. And when Bill and I transferred from the towers to another building on campus. Jason ended up being my sweet mate. So my roommate was uh, Tom and I met Tom through Bill and, and, uh, and through Tom and Bill, I met Jason and we just hit it off. And these guys are my brothers uh, from another mother. And so, yeah, it's just, uh, it's been great. We've done a lot together. We've been through a lot. We started Waterwell Pictures together, which uh, we've done a, a ton of uh, short form projects, films and commercials and music videos. Bill tends to write and, uh, Jason tends to act and produce and we, uh, yeah, it's a great team. So that's me. And then, uh, let's see, I think the other thing is I took a track through my career professionally, aside from the film stuff that I did with Waterwell, um, through the video game industry. So I've done a lot of work in the video game industry, lots of uh, games people have heard of some games people never heard of. And that's kind of been my parallel, uh, sort of creative, uh, endeavor with the stuff that I get to do, uh, with you guys. But yeah, that's kind of it. And then, uh, you know, live in Los Angeles with Bill and Jason. We see each other and talk to each other as much as possible. And I think that's about it. I think I'll leave it there. Thanks for sharing, Marwan. But the simple fact is, we need to know more. So we came up with a list of rapid fire questions to ask you. Are you ready? Do it. Do it now. I'm here. <laughs> what was the first movie you ever saw in the theater? Star Wars. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. Just a, I was just a little cub. I love it. Marwan, can you give us a quick review of the very last movie you saw? So in theaters or in on streaming or both? Either or. How about both? So uh, streaming, I saw Leave the World Behind. 
which I really wanted to see because I actually read the book when it first came out and I wanted to see that. So I thought that was, I thought it was a pretty good translation of the book overall. I thought it was pretty good. And in the last movie I saw in theaters was uh, Dead Reckoning with Tomas Cruz. There you go. Yeah. Thanks for your review. Moving on to our next question. What is your go-to snack food when watching a movie? It's got to be popcorn and milk duds together. I thought you were going to say popcorn and milk. I was no, like, oh, that's an interesting milk combo. duds. Yeah, no, uh, I got to do uh, milk uh, duds and popcorn. Definitely. Milk duds are delicious. And I don't care if they get stuck in my teeth for <laughs> five days. Same here. Good call. Good call. I agree. Good choices. Who is your favorite actor and or actress? So it's got to be, you know, I got to tell you, for me, it's uh, it's really two. I think I'm tied for two. It's really Tom Cruise and Denzel Washington in that generation, those two guys. And then as far as actresses go, I think uh, Susan Sarandon has been just amazing. Um, I've been a fan of hers ever since really Thelma and Louise. I think the, those are my three. Great call. Great choices all yeah. around. Last but not least, Marwan Abdurazak, what is your favorite movie of all time? So this one's a tough one, but for many, many years, it actually has remained sort of the same, but it uh, goes without saying, I have so many, but the one that really is special to me is, uh, is actually Field of Dreams. I, I remember when I saw it, where I was, how it made me feel going in, not knowing anything about it and really just leaving with just sort of like a a warm glow, a warm, it left me with a warm heart and a warm glow. And I don't know how else to put it. It just, it was a really warm, beautiful, funny, charming film about, you can say it's about baseball, but it really is about second chances. And that's why I love it so much. But it, it just, I had this warmth in me that I, it, it just stayed with me for years, really for years. I know that film so well and can't really say enough about it, but it's a special film. So many great moments in it. And it resonates with me till this day after seeing it all these years. It's such a great answer. And man, it makes me nostalgic for those college days because if someone asked me, what are the films that Marwan is a fan of, according to his particular taste, I would have most definitely said Field of Dreams. You were the yeah. one that really pushed me to watch that movie for whatever reason. I had not seen it when I was in college. And you were like, what's wrong with you? You need to watch <laughs> it immediately. And thus I did. And I cried. You want to have a catch? Heck yeah. Yeah. There's that. And then I'll always, when I think of you, my friend, I think of your story about your brother taking you to see Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah. I think of uh, Cinema Paradiso. Yeah. And your affinity for the film Sneakers. I love that film. I know and you, you guys did. gave we, me we, I know sneakers, we always <laughs> sneakers and Radio Flyer. You guys gave me such a hard time in school. Uh, I had the poster. I actually have a, uh, a signed copy of my poster because Derek Hoffman is a friend of ours. And he, uh, he's part of the Donner group. And he got Richard Donner to sign my Radio Flyer movie poster before he died. So shout out to Derek Hoffman for that. But yeah, no, Sneakers, Sneakers is a great film. But yeah, Radio Flyer, that's another one. But you, Radio Flyer and Sneakers, you guys gave me such a heart. And I, I love the soundtrack. Love the soundtrack to Sneakers. James Horner and Branford Marsalis. Do you guys remember how often I listened to that? I don't even recall that. You but, don't? Uh, I'm not surprised. Bill, you must remember. All. You know I had that soundtrack. I listened to it over and over again. Oh, I know. <laughs> but uh could only imagine the things you guys said about me behind my back, you bastards. <laughs> <laughs> no, I have a, de a healthy respect for the film Sneakers. What a wonderful cast. Yeah, great, solid. A well-written yeah, script, too. Yeah, so just great, great answer, choosing Field of Dreams. But uh, I just wanted to mention some of those other films that- Yeah, uh, thanks, I man. Yeah, those are all- you. They're just part of my memories. Yeah. Part of my childhood growing up in Boston and 
being with you guys in college and, and sort of, you know, watching them again. And yeah, definitely. Those, those are really, really seminal films for me. Yeah. That's part of our shared experience in yeah. history. And I don't want to dwell on it too long here, but this is what we did in film school. We came up through film school together and all we did was talk movies. And that's part of the impetus behind this many years later, Bill and I doing this podcast. And we have to give you Marwan credit, I think, to some degree for getting us on the podcast bandwagon because you started listening to film podcasts for some time before oh, yeah. we did. And we're talking about doing a podcast. And then uh, Bill and I found the time to to put it together. Uh, but you're still part of the beginnings of this and the, the spirit behind it. So we oh, appreciate thanks. You, that. Man. That means a lot. Yeah, no, I, I was when you guys when you guys told me you were doing this and and it was just so perfect too. It was such a smart sort of uh, take on podcast for you guys to do. It really fits into your background. And I think I also love how you speak about how it affected you, your memories, uh, your memories in, in, in school, uh, whether it was high school or college. So I think you guys are doing a great job with this podcast. I'm like your number one fan and I'm really proud of you. And I hope, I hope the, the fans continue to listen and, and hopefully this continues to grow and and you guys can share your memories of, of, of the 80s because the 80s are a special time. A lot of incredible films came out of that decade and inspired so much of what we see today, whether or not people believe it or not. You know, it's true. Well, thanks for the inspiration, man. Yeah, thanks, man. Of course, man. And great answers. I think if we played match game, I would have got most of them right. Uh, you know me too well. I would have missed Milk Duds, to be honest. I did not know that about oh, you. Oh, so, Milk Duds, see? yeah. Milk Duds is it for me. Like I tell Jason, I, le- I learned something on my own show. All right, so Marwan, let's get to it. What 80s movies did you choose for us to discuss? Yeah, one of the single greatest action films ever made. And, you know, I'm not going to get into the debate over whether or not it's a Christmas film or not. It, it absolutely is a Christmas film. But above and beyond that, it is one of the single most perfect action films ever put on screen. And that is 1988, Die Hard. From director John McTiernan, starring Bruce Willis, the late, great Alan Rickman, Bonnie Bedelia, and uh, a whole slew of great supporting uh, supporting actors really make out this phenomenal action film from 1988. So that's, that's, the, that's the film, and let us get into it, because I'm yeah. looking forward to this for a long time. All right, yippee-ki-yay. All right, tis the season for Die Hard. So what is this movie about? What's on the box? If you grew up in the 1980s and went to your local video store to rent this movie, you would find this description on the back of the VHS box. It is What's on the Box. Take it away, Jason. High above the city of L.A., a team of terrorists has seized a building, taken hostages, and declared war. But one man has managed to escape detection. An off-duty cop. He's alone, tired, and the only chance anyone has. Bruce Willis stars as New York City detective John McClane, newly arrived in Los Angeles to spend Christmas holiday with his estranged wife, Bonnie Bedelia. But as McClane waits for his wife's office party to break up, terrorists seize control of the building. While the terrorist leader, Hans Gruber, Alan Rickman, and his savage henchman, Alexander Goodenough, round up hostages, McClane slips away unnoticed. Armed with only a service revolver and his cunning, McLean launches his own one-man war. A crackling thriller from beginning to end, Die Hard explodes with heart-stopping suspense. Die Hard. All right, so Marwan, please let us know why you chose Die Hard. So I think I'm, I have a confession to make, and I, you may know this, and you, I don't know two people on this planet who know me better than the two of you, but 
I have a confession to make, and I don't know if you know this. So I was living in Somerville, Massachusetts. That's where I'm from, which is just like 10 minutes north of Boston. Shout out to the Highlanders. I was at the Assembly Mall uh, when I saw the movie poster. And I remember going up to it. I'll never forget it. And I remember saying to myself, this is the stupidest film title and film poster I have ever seen. They named a movie Die Hard. What a joke. I remember literally thinking, what a stupid name for a movie. I don't, did I ever tell you guys that? No, I don't think yeah. I know the story. I swear, I swear to you both. I literally thought it was the dumbest title for a movie. And Bruce, for me, all I knew Bruce from was uh, Moonlighting. So I'm like, you guys put the guy from Moonlighting in a film called Die Hard. And I thought it was a joke. Cut to my uh, brother, who really is the one who introduced me to, um, to filmmaking and, and movies. He and a very dear friend of mine, we went to go see it at the Burlington Mall in Burlington, Massachusetts. And it was the greatest roller coaster ride I've ever had in a, in a theater. It was literally a roller coaster ride for me uh, from beginning to end. It was a shot of like adrenaline like I've never had before. It was so much fun, clever. It was the perfect protagonist and the perfect antagonist. I mean, it was such a perfectly crafted action film. I don't even know how to it into words other than just to say in my opinion it is, is one of the single greatest action films ever made and how i went into the film thinking well it was a popular film it was it was a huge hit and we went to go see it and i'm thinking that's the film i thought was stupid okay well let's go check it out because everyone seems to like it i could not have been more wrong i i just could not have been more wrong and it ended up being the perfect title as well so that's my story about die hard just again, the single one. And also, I would say top five experiences uh, that I've ever had in a movie theater. And that's up there with like Aliens, Field of Dream, Jaws, Star Wars, um, and Raiders. It's like up there and the, sort of like the one of the most important sort of uh, times in my life is seeing that film in theaters at the Burlington Mall. Um, so I'll never forget it. It's just an incredibly special film to me. But uh, more importantly, I just watched it again last night in preparation for uh, for tonight. And it just... Every beat, every moment. I mean, there's there's some, obviously, there's some things you can analyze and overanalyze uh, about it, that there are some holes here and there, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But it just it just stays with me, and it's still fresh after all these years. So, like I said, I can go on and on and on, you guys, but it is, it is to me, one of the most special films I've ever seen in a theater. It just, it's such a blast. Jason, all right, you got to follow that up with your initial thoughts of that. I certainly do, and... I'm going to try my best, but Marwan, I love hearing the enthusiasm and the passion in your voice when you speak of it and to see you on camera here. Unfortunately, our audience can't see you, but to see the smile on your face when you talk about this movie. And that's how I feel. We share the same emotions and we're going to have a little crossover in our initial thoughts. Buckle up, ladies and gentlemen, because you know I like to pontificate a little bit with my initial thoughts. Here we go. Oh, the weather outside is frightful. Dum-de-dum-de-dum, delightful. Guys, this movie makes me tingly all over. It's simply the best. It will most likely forever remain in my top 10 of all time. And it was the summer. Between my freshman and sophomore year in high school, I was 14 years old. My buddy Chris Zolfel, who was definitely a friend, one of the cool guys that ran with a slightly different crew, well, he knew I was a movie buff and he would... Do me the honor of calling me from time to time to, to hit up a flick. And on this particular day, we decided to catch Die Hard at the local Antioch Theater outside of Chicago, small town. At this theater, the tickets were a bit cheap. It used to be a dollar theater. It went up to three bucks at some point. But 
Now, I do distinctly remember seeing the trailers for Die Hard on television. It looked explosive, pun intended, but I wasn't yet blown away. It had that star named Bruce Willis that I wasn't overly familiar with other than like Marwan, an episode or two of Moonlighting and maybe the film Blind Date. Thus, it didn't really have the star power or attraction for me based on the concept alone. I'll be honest, the bottom line is that it looked like a B action flick. It didn't seem to be a movie my family would rush out to see, so based on the trailers alone, I thought I'd see it whenever I got around to seeing it. But on that fateful day, Chris called me up and we hit the Antioch Theater, and the rest is history. Needless to say, yes, I was blown away. No doubt in part because my expectations were low, and yes, this would be considered a sleeper hit at the time. But man, the movie just captured the rugged everyman cop story in a way it hadn't been told before. And it turns out the concept was curated to be the ultimate thriller. This cop from out of town who happens to get trapped inside a building with 13 terrorists slash thieves and over 30 hostages, one of them being his estranged wife. How's he going to save the day against impossible odds? Are you kidding me? Brilliant. It's got as many levels as the Nakatoming building itself. It's got the intensive action set pieces, the everyman hero in bare feet and bloody tank top, the constraint of the location, the time constraint, the high stakes of so many lives at risk, a buddy cop relationship, the cop wife relationship. It's a heist movie and it's got a killer supporting cast, as Marwan mentioned. And then, of course, we have one of cinema's best bad guys of all time. We have Alan Rickman as Hans Gruber, who gives an absolutely sublime performance. The movie was released in the summer of 88. We had plenty of great cop movies up to this point. 48 Hours, Beverly Hills Cop, Robocop, Lethal Weapon, Manhunter, just to name a few. But this just hit differently because the concept felt so fresh. And the movie changed the way action movies were thought of and how they were made. And it would spawn a whole trend of movies that were die hard on a blank, as in die hard on a bus. You get Speed, directed by Jan DeBont, who's our cinematographer here on Die Hard. Or you get Die Hard on a Plane, Passenger 57, or Die Hard on a Boat, Under Siege, Speed 2. Die Hard on a Train, Under Siege 2, Dark Territory, you get the idea. We quote it almost every day of our lives, that's Bill Marwan and I. Whether it's Yippie Kaye or Welcome to the Party Pal, or There Are Rules for Policemen, or Shoot the Glass. It's just like fucking Saigon, hey, Slick? I mean, it's all of it. Marwan's got so many favorites, and I have to say Marwan would quote this all the time back in film school at UM, and he would like to do so ever so loudly and embarrassingly in line at the cafeteria or simply <laughs> whenever or wherever he greeted me. And he still does it to this day. He'll just be walking up to me a mile away, and he'll start yelling quotes. And I'll be like, Marwan, I, we're in public, man. <laughs> It's great. I'm going to give you guys a, a memory here. And I think people are going to probably think we were crazy, which we were in college. So do you remember when I, I got you guys, we talked about going to the pool. We had the most amazing pool. It's still there at the University of Miami. And uh, it's a 10 meter platform. And I wrapped a long sheet around me and I went onto the 10 meter platform and I jumped to imitate Bruce Willis when he himself with the hose Do you, were you guys there for that <laughs> were you there for that well we have many fond memories from job because jumping off the dive board but uh i don't remember that you don't remember that okay bill bill you got to remember that the thing is is that what i don't understand is do you remember okay do you know who i got to film it because there was a few of us there who filmed it jenny work filmed it 
our dear friend Jenny, the brilliant, she was majoring in marine biology and we were like her brothers and she just kind of went along with our antics and rolled her eyes, but she just loved being around us and she's one of our dear friends from college. And Jenny filmed it. You don't remember this, Bill? What did she film it with? She filmed it on some, I don't know, some camcorder that we had. Were you... Are you telling me you guys both weren't there? Wait, okay. So this must be the, then the one time, because I recall it being filmed, absolutely, of us yeah, yeah, climbing so, up and jumping off with, with Sippy, actually. Yeah, it, that's that was the night when you and I and Sippy went and jumped, and I went and I tied two sheets oh, around my oh, around my waist. Right. And the idea oh, was to God. jump and have the sheet curve, like have it sort of arc, rather. Right. And then Jenny filmed it, and then I went and go to check it out. Like I was, you know, acting and, and directing at the same time. And she was so upset because I don't think she got it in frame. And I'm like, okay, no, it's okay. It's okay. And the thing is, is we weren't supposed to be there. We were breaking oh, yeah, into no. the uh, the pool at night when we shouldn't have been. And I'm like, it's okay. It's okay. And I did it again. And she filmed it and we nailed it on the second take. You don't remember that? Oh, you guys. Yeah. Well, now me. when you say wrapping the sheet around you, yes, that yeah. I recall. Yeah. That jogged my memory. It was definitely me and Jason. And that was the night I think we got our, our other roommate. Uh, Sippy, who was always fearful of jumping to jump off the 10 meter platform. And you guys finally dragged him off, pulled him off the 10 meter platform. So that was just, that was the best. And then the other memory I have of this film and how important it is to us, I think it was my very first visit to Los Angeles. Jason had gotten to LA before me. I landed, I stayed with Jason, of course. And then Jason said, we're going to go for a, a drive tomorrow. So later in the day, I'm like, okay, he didn't tell me where we were in the car. And I think we were with one of your roommates at the time when you first moved to LA. And I'm like, I, and I didn't know where we were, but sure enough, where does he take me to? He takes me to Century City, and I didn't know what Century City was or where it was. And in the distance is the Nakatomi Plaza, which is Fox Plaza. And he plays um, Let It Snow, Let It Snow, Let It Snow. And I, I was looking at him, and he's like, okay, now listen to this. And he plays the song, and I'm like, what? And then right away, I'm like, wait a minute. And then I looked, and off in the distance was Nakatomi, and I'll never forget it. Do you remember that, Jason? A hundred percent. I have it right here in my notes. It's one of the stories I wanted to relay. I It's one of my favorite memories. Yeah, those two memories are definitely obviously linked and inspired by this great film that we're going to talk about today. So, you know, I think of those times often because like it was just so much fun and it was so great to share those with you guys. It, it was amazing. We actually, I remember walking into the building and going into the elevator to go up to the 30th floor and it looked a little bit different at that time. But yeah, it's just one of the best things to be able to drive. Oh, yeah. I remember we- Fox Plaza and see that building. We actually parked and went into the lobby. Yeah. And I remember thinking how tiny the front looked. And it was actually similar because it wasn't many, many years after the film, right? It was tiny. And then we went into everything looked so small and, and a fifth of what it was on screen. Because on the screen, it looked huge, the front, you know, the front parking lot. Right. But yeah, I remember. But it was such it was so great to go there. And then you playing the soundtrack. It was it was perfect. I had to do it, my friend. And it's one of my favorite memories. So yeah. that's great. Uh, I appreciate you sharing that with us again and our audience. And yes, Marwan would quote these movies all the time, especially back in college, as I was saying. And one of my favorite memories is walking across the bridge that went over Lake Osceola from <laughs> one side where a lot of the dorms were to the other side where the eye cafeteria was, et cetera. And I'd be walking across the bridge and about 100 to 200 feet behind me, all I would hear is, Luke, Luke. <laughs> And I would just hang my head and I'd be like, damn it, Marwan. He's yelling basically across campus, just yelling movie quotes. At There's got to be like at least, what, 50 to 100 other students there? Yeah, just walking by, just going, what, what is, what's happening right now? <laughs> Couldn't avoid it. Couldn't avoid it. And you knew, you knew I could hear you, even though I would pretend I didn't. Anyway. I, I know. 
you had tried so hard to ignore me, but I, the, the embarrassment I caused was just too powerful. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Getting back on track with Die Hard. I recall cuddling with my high school girlfriend watching this on VHS. I remember uh, when my friend Patrick Duty, our friend, I should say, Patrick Duty got me the official soundtrack on Veresi Saraband CD when it was finally released in the early 2000s. I had the Die Hard Trilogy video game on the original PlayStation, which was the absolute best. It had three different levels that were different styles of gameplay for each of the first three movies. I would play it at ad nauseum with Mark Eliopoulos and our friends Eric Kyle and Ian. We laughed so freaking hard that it was just a great time. Patrick Duty and our friend Chris Valanziano used to have Christmas parties with a double feature viewing of Silent Night, Deadly Night, and Die Hard. So this movie is ingrained in our souls, ladies and gentlemen. Look, after a long day of traveling, I still make fists with my toes. The fact is that it is an honor and a privilege to be doing this podcast, covering this film today with two of my great friends in life and career, and both of whom are tremendous fans of this movie and film in general. And to be able to do this with you guys, knowing that this film in particular was and remains so inspirational to us and is a huge reason why we're in this business. It's a movie I will always cherish. For me, it is a Christmas movie. And every time I hear Ode to Joy or Let It Snow, I always think of this film first. It has had a tremendous and lasting impact. Watching it again today, just as good as it ever was. The standouts all remain the same. Die Hard is 40 stories of sheer bliss. What are your initial thoughts, Bill Band? All right. God, I got to follow up to both of you now. Jesus. (laughs) So unlike you two, I did not see this in the theater. Oh, yeah, I mean, I had no, I really had no idea who Bruce Willis was outside of maybe Moonlighting and I mentioned Blind Date, which was a big bomb. So I really didn't expect this movie to go anywhere, but you would hear a lot about it on the news. You know, this is kind of a sleeper hit that summer. No one really expected this to take off as it did. So it really wasn't until it came out on video that uh, we did uh, the family Friday rental. Usually my dad would work on Friday nights. So uh, my mom would always do our signature mac and cheese and fish sticks. And we'd rent a movie and uh, we'd rent it die hard. And that's what we watched the one Friday night. And just being blown away by that movie. I mean, you think about 80s action movies and it was Schwarzenegger and Stallone and it was these huge guys that would go to these bunkers against these incredible odds and beat the shit out of everybody and they wouldn't get a scratch. And now we have Bruce Willis who's trapped in a building with these terrorists and along the way he's getting the shit kicked out of him. I mean, the longer the movie gets, the more bloodier it gets. You don't, you didn't see this. You didn't see the every man stepping up and trying to save everyone. So this was new to us as action movies and that really had an impact and like you mentioned too everything after that became die hard in a bus die hard in a boat die hard in a plane it had such a big impact and bruce willis's career really took off i mean we had moonlighting which was a great show but he was one of the few that could move on to films and had a really uh, amazing career because of this and uh, they made four other sequels so die hard to me is one of the greatest action movies of all time. If you're analyzing film and you're talking about the history of action, this is one of those movies you have to put on that list. I mean, it's it's like Raiders of the Lost Ark, Die Hard. That's like the two 80s movies you would put on there. They're so influential. And then just, you know, meeting you guys. And I mean, you two would literally act out scenes from this movie all the time. You two and and Chris Valenziano. And it was just Uh. hilarious because for four years, we were always living this movie. And then just even your villain, 
Alan Rickman. I mean, he was so different than your normal villain, sophisticated business suit, very smart. It was something different than what a Bond villain was, but there was just something about him. Like you liked him, but you know, he was the bad guy. He just had an air about him that was amazing. So just the elements was just everything in this movie worked and you didn't know what to expect. And Willis would be put in these situations and you didn't know how he was going to get out of it because he wasn't a Schwarzenegger. He wasn't a Stallone. He didn't have unlimited ammo. He didn't have all these weapons. It was, I killed a guy. I got to pick up his gun and move on. Yeah, you got to think on my feet. The only person I can relate to is is someone that's outside the building. He, he didn't have anybody to really to work with. So it was just so different and just changed the action genre from then on it was such an impact so die hard i'm sure anyone that's listening to this episode has watched this movie but if you have not watched it recently put it in watch it again i can't believe how much it still holds up just amazing movie absolutely yeah well said agreed so that takes us to our favorite scenes or moments marwan let us know what's your one of your favorite scenes or moments from die hard can i give two oh yeah yeah i think for me it, it's got to be hans's sort of introduction to the people at the party so it's basically ladies and gentlemen ladies and gentlemen please due to the nakatomi's legacy of greed around the globe they are about to be taught a lesson in the real use of power you will be witnesses now where is mr takagi that whole scene i love that scene i know it inside and out just how sort of mild-mannered and smooth he was about his entrance right he wasn't aggressive. He just was very calm, very businesslike. And really from that moment, you could tell that these guys weren't like, there's a reason that they're here, right? There's something going on. And these weren't the normal everyday sort of like bad guys, if you will. So that whole sequence and just him walking around and looking for Tagagi, but that whole sequence is just great. The other is, and I can't, I, I just forgot how really cool it was just to, to kind of go through it, is Ellis trying to negotiate a deal with Hans. That to me, those two moments are just, I think two of my favorite, there's so many others. Those really stand out to me just because, you know, Hart Barkner is really, really like, he just kind of nails that role and the dynamics with him and, um, and Hans. And then of course, Bruce Willis on the radio trying to basically tell him to shut up. That whole sequence is great because he he didn't like uh, Ellis, but he didn't want the guy to die. But those two sequences to me, those two scenes or uh, yeah, or moments in the films are two of my favorites. I can't get enough of them. A hundred percent. Go ahead, Bill. Watching it recently, the scene when Khan starts talking about Tagagi, what I kind of realized watching it this time, like he knows who he is in that room because I mean. There's no way you know all that information, not know who he is. Well, we talked about this, and right? We, yeah. we talked it. So what makes it so great? It's it's almost like a little animal playing with their prey. Yeah, yeah. That's a good He's point. He's just kind of walking through that room, torturing him because it's like, I know everything about you. That's a good point. And I know who you are. And even though he walks through the room and pretends he's kind of looking at everyone else. It's like, you know who he is. And he just wants to see how far he can go without making him break to him finally stepping up and say, okay, enough. And father of five. Yep. You're, you're right. Because I was like, how do you know everything about the building, everything about the safe, everything about how the, the police and the FBI, and you don't know what Takagi looked like. So you're right. I, I kind of, that's no longer sort of a, a hole for me. You're right. I think he was just poking a mouse. You know, he was just poking the prey. 
Yeah, he just went to, you know, you're not dealing with some just regular. No, he knew. You're right. You're right. I buy that. This is someone who's done their homework and knows everything about you. So you cannot hide anything from me because I already know. So you better do what I ask. I really felt it this time watching it. I'm like, oh, he knows who this bastard is. He's just messing with him big time. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. And watching Alan Rickman just do his thing, he's so comfortable in his skin. He clearly owns the part and he's bringing himself to the role. And in that particular sequence, he's exercising his confidence and his dominance in a relaxed manner. And it's eerie, it's calm, and he just floats around the room and intimidates by his cadence, his delivery, and he is not playing at it. He's not over the top. He's not going, hey, look at me, I'm a bad guy. He's just saying, this is the situation. I am in control. Make no mistake. I mean, he says something to that fact almost exactly uh, a little bit later, but he dominates and we can't keep your eyes off of him. It's fantastic. And then, yes, Ellis, man, Hart Barkner as, as, as Ellis is such a memorable supporting character in this because he's such a smarmy dickhead. And I believe in the trivia, and I'm going to step on this a little bit in case anybody has it. I apologize later on in that segment. He initially was, I forget what type of character he was supposed to be initially, but he was friends with one of the producers, if I'm not mistaken, and he decided to go in a different direction. And when they saw what he was going to do, they were like, oh, that works. So I give Hart Bachner the the credit as an actor for making a, a hot choice there and going the way he did with it, because he's such a jerk that we remember him forever. Great calls, both scenes, Marwan. Hans, Bubby. Hans, Booby, I'm your white knight. (laughs) And that is a hard scene because as much as you hate Ellis, you know McLean did the right thing. It's, I cannot give up what I have because we're all going to get killed. And unfortunately, Ellis is going to get sacrificed for it. And of course, that's a bad look, but he really does the right thing. And I think that just kind of makes it tough. Definitely, yeah. Great scenes. Those are both great scenes. Jason, what do you got for your favorite scene or moment? Absolutely. I'm going to go into some detail, so bear with me. But my first favorite scene, I'm calling Welcome to the Party, Pal. I, oh, I can Yeah, I love saying it. I love saying it. So I'll get into it. And Bill, obviously, you just said that you share this favorite scene. So please add on. So, okay. So where are we at here in the film? Well, these alleged terrorists have infiltrated and taken over the Nakatomi building. And they've taken over 30 hostages. And John McClane, New York cop has managed to take out one of the alleged terrorists, Tony, who happens to be the brother of one of the most dangerous terrorists of them all, Carl, played by the great Alexander Goodenough. Needless to say, Carl is not happy about that. But McLean now has a machine gun and a walkie-talkie and makes his way to the roof to get a clear signal and puts out an emergency call to anyone who can hear him. He's frantic. And the dispatch on the other end picks up and is frustratingly skeptical. I love this little exchange when the woman who is the dispatch, says, attention, whoever you are, this channel is reserved for emergency calls only. And McLean responds with, no fucking shit, lady. Does it sound like I'm ordering a pizza? Absolutely love it. Every time I hear it, he tries to tell the emergency dispatch the details he's gathered about these terrorists and this situation, the circumstances thus far. But because he's using an open channel on the walkie-talkie, the terrorists can hear him as well because they all have the walkie-talkies. And Hans... Alan Rickman, he sends his men to the roof to take out John McClane. So before McClane can finish talking to the emergency dispatch, 
Carl and his two other henchmen start firing at him. They've made their way to the rooftop. They start shooting at him. A chase ensues on the rooftop, and John makes his way back inside and has to maneuver his way through a giant fan that he somehow rigs to stop with like a wrench of some sort. And anyway, he makes his way into a ventilation shaft. He's got only one way to get out, and that's down through this ventilation shaft because Carl and his guys are coming from the other side. So he proceeds to climb through a small opening, props his machine gun horizontally against the opening so he can use the shoulder strap from the gun to lower himself into the shaft and then attempt to reach an opening into a vent on the lower level on the opposite side. But just as the bad guys make their way to him, the shoulder strap loosens and releases, and McLean falls down the shaft, missing the opening he was reaching for, and somehow luckily grabs another opening which he climbs through. Now he's climbing through one of these small vent shafts, and he uses his lighter to see his way through, and this gives away his position. So Carl and his guys run down to that level, and they shoot up the vent that they believe McLean has climbed into, just narrowly missing McLean. But then Carl and his guys get called away because... The emergency dispatch managed to reach a police sergeant in a squad car who happened to be in the area, and they tell him to check out a Code 2 at the Nakatomi Plaza. Thus, we are introduced to the wonderful, the one and only, Sergeant Al Powell. Al drives his police car slowly into the plaza and into the roundabout outside the Nakatomi building, looking for any signs of trouble as reported. And meanwhile, up on the 30th floor, McLean has made his way to a window and sees Powell driving around slowly in circles. And he's like, who's driving this car? Stevie Wonder? And of course, the terrorists are also keeping a close eye on Powell from above. They've got a guy in the rooftop with a machine gun pointed down at his patrol car. There's other guys on a different floor with their machine guns pointed out the window. Sergeant Al Powell decides to get out of his car and enter the building where he's greeted by our Huey Lewis lookalike terrorist. Shout out to Dennis Habert, who is kind enough to allow him to walk around the entrance lobby. Now, while we're watching Al take a look around, we see the terrorists we know have an eye on Al Powell. But meanwhile, McLean has decided he's going to try to break a window with a chair. This is way up on the 30th floor in order to get Powell's attention. And again, this gives away his location. So the terrorists go after him on that floor. And after McLean manages to put a hole in the window, he hears something behind him and turns around to see two terrorists, both Heinrich and Marco, rush in. McLean shoots Heinrich and then dives underneath the table while Marco jumps on top of the table with his machine gun firing away, forcing McLean to crawl further underneath. And when Marco thinks he's got him cornered, he's yelling out, You're done! No more table! Where are you going, pal? Next time you have a chance to kill someone, don't hesitate! And then John McLean, beneath the table, shoots directly upward into Marco, killing him, dropping him. And he says, thanks for the advice. So McLean goes back to the window to see that Powell is returning to his car to leave, and he can't believe it, but he's got an idea. Cut to a great shot, basically from Powell's POV inside the patrol car as he's put it into reverse. And we see the terrorist, the dead terrorist, Marco's body, fall from above and directly into Powell's windshield. Al Powell freaks out, screaming, and cruises backward in reverse as the terrorists with eyes on him start blasting away, riddling his patrol car with bullets. And that's when John McClane yells from above, Welcome to the party, pal! And of course, Powell starts calling for backup while he's losing his mind. It's just great action. We're introduced to Al Powell. And now we know the cops are going to get involved. So the cavalry is about to arrive. And McLean's pulled off some real hero shit. 
and taken out two more terrorists. That's three in total at this point. And we're just about at the one hour mark here, gentlemen, in the film, and things are really cooking with gas. So I love that entire sequence that leads up to welcome to the party, pal. No more table. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, man. That's a great scene. That's a whole that that's a great scene. They're all great scenes, to be honest. But yeah, Bill Bant, did you have anything to add to that since I stepped on your favorite scene? Yeah, there is a good moment when they're in the um, air ducts and they shoot it up and McLean's still in there. And then Carl takes his gun to check the weight and it's like, poo -poo, poo -poo. and McLean just gets his, his gun and he loads like, all right, I'm going to have to figure out how to get out of this if they uh, see that I'm in here. And you literally see the air duct lift the one right in front of him and you're like oh, dude how's he gonna get out of this you see the bullet hole there where it got shot through and then carl gets called away because pal showed up so pal accidentally saves him and doesn't even know it it's a pretty tense moment because you're you're like yeah what, what's he gonna do shoot, shoot through the duct and get him i don't know there's two guys in there he's screwed but uh he gets away just a lot yeah. of those kind of moments. A lot of dumb luck. You know, one thing I wanted to point out is um, I realized after watching Die Hard how perfect of a director John McTiernan was for The Hunt for Red October. There was a lot of sequences in, in Die Hard which were in sort of closed, enclosed, sort of really tight, narrow spaces. It was perfect for him to shoot in a sort of a submarine. I don't know if you guys sort of found that or sort of thought of that correlation, but there was a sequence where one of the uh, the guys is he puts his arms onto the uh, the railing and sort of whips down the uh, the stairs rather than kind of walk or run. He just sort of slides down with his arms underneath, um, with the railing underneath his arms. And so I found that a lot of the tight sequences and a lot of the tight corridors were perfect. And I could see why John McTiernan did so well filming uh, Hunt for Red October. I don't know if you guys picked up on that, but that's kind of one of the things that kind of jogged my memory is, is sort of how we went from Die Hard to Hunt for Red October. I'll be honest. I never thought of that, but that makes a lot of sense. Great observation. Absolutely. I hadn't thought of it either. That's a good, really good call. But McTiernan directs this flawlessly. I mean, you talk about how much action is happening throughout. It's paced so well. It's written really well by Jeb Stewart and Stephen E. D'Souza. There's so much packed into two hours and 11, 12 minutes. It's a really, really tight movie. It is. It's relentless. It never lets up and McTiernan really kills it. And I know you have an eye for this. as You're a talented director yourself, Marwan. But the way he uses the frame, I love it. Kind of feels like it's almost like a wide angle lens. You know, there's a lot of negative space in a lot of the frames where you just feel like you feel the scope of the movie, but it's intimate at the same time in moments. It's uh, really well directed. Yeah, for me, the sort of the triangle of the sort of the direction, the writing and the acting to me is well represented within Bruce Willis's character because he's alone for most of the film. And the way it's interesting, the way it's humorous, the way it's sort of like the way he's communicating with the audience is by talking to himself. It happens right away when sort of he gets into a fight with Holly and, you know, she walks out because she has to, you know, give a, a speech to the troops. And then he starts talking to himself about kind of like what an idiot he is. That's sort of right there is a jumping off point for you being comfortable with this guy. He's going to constantly talk to himself. And he, he he does. He constantly talks to himself throughout the film. And, and I think that that's what makes his moments of being alone that much more intense, what makes it also humorous. And so, like I said, that that to me is like the perfect triangle of the direction, the acting and the writing. Great stuff. Bill Bant, so do you have another favorite scene you would like to share with us then? 
Yeah, we can move on to the L.A. police getting their ass kicked. So, <laughs> send in the car. It's just send in the car. It's the way this film represents LAPD and the FBI. It's just there is no mercy. No, no mercy. Yeah. So at this point, Powell has made contact with McLean, and Powell's superior, Dwayne T. Robinson, has now taken charge. And they decide that they're going to basically rush the building because they don't believe what McLean's telling them. And uh, they're going to go in and, and save the day. And McLean's like, don't do that. Your guys are going to get your ass kicked. And sure enough, that's what happens. And they send a little squadron of guys in to try to get in the front door. But this group, I mean, we keep saying terrorists, but they're not really terrorists. We're just, they're not. They're thieves. You know, they're thieves. But the thieves are ready because they have all these supplies, they have these missiles, and they have cameras. So they see everything that's going on. So they're all ready for this because they know what the by-the-book game plan is for the police. And they're downstairs in the lobby waiting for these police to try to open the door. And when they're trying to break in, they just shoot them all in the legs. So now they're all incapacitated. So they need to decide to send in their little armored tank to try to bust in through the front door. And of course, because they have the missiles, they just start beating the shit out of this car, shooting missiles at it. Now the LA police are all in frantic and like, get him out of there, get out of here. And McLean's on the walkie talk and he's telling Hans, knock it off. You proved your point. Let him go. You know, they're not going to get in. And Hans is like, nope, hit him again, hit him again. So McLean's like, all right, I got to do something to stop it. And one of the terrorists that he did beat up had uh, a brick of C4 and detonators. And Hans needs these detonators because later on, when they plan their escape, they're supposed to be blowing up the roof thinking they all died in the blast. That way they can get away with the money. So it's funny because McLean dumps the bag with the C4 and he just starts taking the detonators and just starts sticking them all in the C4. He's like, all right, what should I do now? And he goes to the elevator shaft and opens it and takes a monitor, just rips it, throws it on top of the C4, and then just literally just throws it down the shaft, blowing up the whole first floor of the building, taking out any of the burglars on the first floor, taking out one of the other burglars who was getting another missile because he was by the elevator shaft, and literally shakes the building with the impact. And that's just one brick of C4 that does all this. And it was just a crazy stunt because even... McLean doesn't know what's going to happen when he dropped it down the elevator shaft. And then this explosion just slowly starts making its way up the shaft. And he's like, holy shit. And he just dives out of the way just in time. But at that point, that at least stops the attack. But of course, Robinson's all pissed off because everybody's covered in glass. But he just saved the lives <laughs> of all the policemen and took out two or three terrorists slash burglars in the process. But it was pretty crazy special effect explosion there just watching the whole first two floors blow up then you see everybody else on the 30th floor shaking like what the hell is going on because they they have no clue but now there's no more detonators in c4 so it's how are they going to proceed with their plan oh man i was so close to choosing this as one of my favorite scenes and or just entire sequences because it's so much fun and you guys are alluding to the fact that these bad guys are one step ahead of the cops all the time. The cops portrayed in this film are portrayed as bumbling idiots, and it's fun. We like to live vicariously through the bad guys, and we like to see well-written, well-rounded bad guys that are crafty and smart and clever, and that's entertaining. 
and that's what we get in the sequence. I mean, they are loaded to bear. I mean, they have all of the weapons and they know exactly what the playbook is by the cops, but it's just so fun with Michael Kamen's score thumping in the background oh, as yeah. the SWAT starts to approach the building and they shine the lights up. And there's so many great quotes because they shine up the lights to light up the building so the bad guys can't see very well to give the SWAT team approaching the building cover. And then, of course, the bad guys know that, so they start shooting at the lights, and the oblivious and idiot Deputy Chief Dwayne T. Robinson, played brilliantly once again by Paul Gleason, who we love on this podcast, he is like, they're going after the lights. <laughs> like, yeah, no kidding, man. So many quotable lines here. Help me out, guys. I mean, it's when the, the four SWAT guys are coming into the building, and you've got Theo, our tech terrorist is going uh here they come two by two cover formation the quarterback is toast that's what i was going to get to next after they light up the rv that's approaching the building twice with two different missiles it's such a quotable scene and it's violent it's violent because hans is relentless shooting the missiles at the tank or the uh, rv i should say that explosion is hardcore yeah, great, great sequence. It's it's intense. It's a blast. And yeah. Literally. <laughs> the other scene, if I may, is um, it's actually not an action scene. It's a scene where Han is going up the elevator with uh, Takagi to uh, to talk to him. And as they're going up to the elevator, you know, he has that. And when Alexander saw the breadth of his domain, he wept for the one of worlds to conquer. And then he takes him to the office, uh, into the conference room, and is talking to him. It's like a negotiation. He's like, you know, give me the code. He's like, I don't, I don't have it. You're, you're, you're just gonna have to kill me. Okay. It just goes to show you how ruthless and relentless he was. And it's not a big shoot. It's just, it's literally one shot to the head. And it's just like a very, fairly quiet moment of them just talking in an office, you know, not yelling and screaming, you know, you know what I mean? All of that is left for John McClane. So it goes to show you the kind of the difference between what McClane was going through and what was Hans was going through really cool balancing of how the two words. So it's just phenomenal, phenomenal the way they handled it. Yeah, I definitely appreciate that commentary. Go ahead, Bill. No, because even with that scene when uh, Takagi gets killed and you have Theo and Carl like arguing about oh, the if he's going to give up the uh, yeah. info or not. And Theo's like, nope, he's not going to say anything. And Carl thought he did. And told you. He's killed. Yeah. You see Carl hand him the money. I'm like, oh, Jesus, man. Yeah. No, no. They, they, were, guys they were complete sociopaths, all of them. I would say to the audience, if you go back and revisit this film, which I'm sure many of our listeners do, especially around this time of year, pay attention to this ensemble cast. Because as they just pointed out in this particular scene that Marwan's talking about when Gruber takes out Mr. Takagi and there's a little dynamic between Theo and Carl in the background, that happens throughout the entire film. We have so many different supporting characters that have little back and forth moments that actually give them a life and really fills out the story, which really adds to this entire experience. So if you pay attention to that, you immediately become impressed with the writing. And there's a reason why they actually had to fill out some of these side characters or supporting characters. And it's in the research if you look it up, but there was some scheduling issues and shooting the footage with Bruce Willis and oh, things yeah, like that. Right. Yeah, and yeah. so they needed to basically fluff up or enhance these supporting roles. And that's why you get 
William Atherton was such a great role as Dick Thornburg. What a great character name as the reporter. Or even the the reporters in uh, in the newsroom. Or, oh, they were know, hilarious. Every character has these quintessential lines that you remember and you remember their faces and you're like, wow, how is each and every little character so memorable? Yeah, it's such a commentary too. Like I said, I mean, the way they made the LAPD and the FBI look, but also the media. They attacked everybody. They really went after everybody and kind of made them sort of a character caricatures of themselves. Yeah, really fun stuff. Really fun stuff. The deeper you go into it, actually, there's a lot below the surface, right? There's a lot below the surface, and that's kind of what makes it so good. Um, just a really smart, intelligent script with just great, great performances. I can't get enough of this thing. Yeah, and this is why we say that it just, there's so many elements that go into making a good movie, not to mention luck being one of them, but the pieces came together for this one. But talking sure about did, yeah. what makes this movie special, uh, that's a good kind of, or what's happening a little bit underneath or one of the deeper levels of this. That's kind of a segue into my next favorite scene. If you gentlemen will indulge me, my next favorite scene is what I call John says he's sorry. And at this point, well, John McClane's all beat up. He's been in another huge shootout with the terrorists, including Hans, whom he just met face to face. Another great scene, by the way. And as a result, he has to run over a whole bunch of glass in his bare feet in order to escape this shootout. His feet are all bloody. He's a complete mess. He's found respite and a moment of quiet in a bathroom. And then his new found friend, Al Powell down on the ground calls him over the walkie-talkie, and as John is pulling the pieces of glass from the bottom of his foot, they engage in this conversation. Al's is saying, "Hey, McLean, you still with us?" And they get to talking, and McLean says, "Uh, hey, pal, you got flat feet." And Powell responds with, "What the hell are you talking about, man?" And he says, "Something had to get you off the street." And Al Powell divulges some personal information here. He, he tells the story about the fact that he shot a kid. That was only 13 years old. It was dark. He couldn't see him. He had a ray gun. It looked real enough. And you know, when you're a rookie, they can teach you everything about being a cop except how to live with a mistake. And that's what Al Powell is sharing with John over the walkie at this point. And it's a bonding moment. And yeah. McLean takes it to heart. And he's like, oh, Jesus. Like, Sorry, man. Yeah, that's a great moment. That's actually a great moment. It's heartfelt. And then... This whole movie just kind of stops for this scene. And McLean then decides to share a little bit himself because this is a little bit of an all is lost moment here. And you're feeling it just by looking at McLean. And he says, listen, man, talking to Al Powell, he says, uh, I'm starting to get a bad feeling up here. I want I want you to do something for me. I want you to find my wife. Don't ask me how. By then you'll know how. Uh, I, I want you to tell her something. I want you to tell her that. Tell her that it took me a while to figure out what a jerk I've been, but uh, that when things started to pan out for her, I should have been more supportive and I should have been behind her more. And tell her that that she's the best thing that ever happened to a bum like me. She's heard me say I love you a thousand times, but she never heard me say I'm sorry. And I want you to tell her that, Al. I want you to tell her that John said that he was sorry, okay? You got that, man? And Al just responds with, yeah, I got it, man, but you can tell her yourself. You just watch your ass and you can get out of there. This is an important scene that I've always loved. I actually shared this moment on a previous mini-sode of our podcast talking about why I really do feel this is a buddy cop movie because of this relationship between mm, yeah. McLean and Powell. It's displayed and delivered in a unique way in this movie because they're they're never in the same room together. 
The actors are never in the same scene together. They're literally saying their dialogue over this walkie-talkie the entire time. And I also love this this scene, probably in part because it was called out by Roger Ebert on the episode of At The Movies when they reviewed this. And it's a bonding scene. It reveals their humanity and flaws. And it's an honest moment. It's not looking good for John. And instead of saying goodbye or I love you to his wife, he just wants to say he's sorry. Yeah. And yeah, what a great moment. It's a well-acted scene. Willis is on the verge of tears in this. And as an audience, if we weren't in hook, line and sinker, now we're completely invested in these relationships and generally care about what happens to these characters. Mm -hmm. 100%. And on that note, you know, we can't go too much longer without saying how solid Bonnie Bedelia is. Really solid role for her. Smart, tough, no nonsense, holds her own, did really well with holding her own against Bruce Willis and Alan Rickman. From what I've read, her and Alan Rickman really bonded on the set of this film. They really became close friends. But Bonnie Adelia, really great role for her. And, and you know, a little uh, trivia here. When Bill wrote over cards, which was um, a concept I came up with, and Bill kind of ran with it. It's a short film that the three of us did. Jason, you ha- your monologue at the end is that kind of my direction. And I, I think, I mean, Bill, if you remember, like, I think I pointed you to Presumed Innocent and Bonnie Bedelia's performance in Presumed Innocent at the end of that film. Spoiler alert on that, but where she kind of reveals what she did. She's the killer at the end of Presumed Innocent. All of that is based on my just being inspired by Bonnie Bedelia's performance. I don't know if you guys remember mm, that. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah. uh, Bonnie Bedelia is fantastic. Fantastic. Good of you to call her out. I also am going to go back to Reginald Vell Johnson because Bill and I have talked about that on this podcast. Oh, he's great. He's yeah. one of the most likable actors because for me, because of this film, because I adore him and his earnest performance in this. I loved him. I, I wanted to see him more. I wanted to see him more. Yeah, I loved him. He's so lovable. And every time he pops up in another film, 80s or otherwise, you smile. I've been like slipping into an old pair of shoes that are so comfortable. It's like, oh, man. Al Powell's back. I love this guy. He can do no wrong. Yeah, no, I loved him, though. I remember after seeing that, I just, oh, I remember liking that guy, and I wanted to see him in more films. And it's great when he pops up in the sequel, too. You're like, oh, thank goodness, at least he's here for a minute in the sequel. Oh, yeah, that's right, yeah. Anything else for favorite scenes or moments? I have one moment, and it's at the end. Okay. When John finally meets Al in person. Yeah. That's it. It almost brings tears to my eyes. And they're just, the way they looked at each other, so cool. It was just a look. Because they got each other through this traumatic situation. I mean, they yeah. needed each other to survive it. Oh, yeah. It's really a great moment. Yeah. Cool. All right. Time to move on to Swiss cheese and complaint department. And Jason, why do we call it Swiss cheese? Because although this movie may be delicious, it certainly has. Now I have a machine gun. Oh, oh, oh. Holes. <laughs> what plot holes, bloopers, or general complaints? What complaints would you like to file with our complaint department, Marwan? Okay. The first one. So when McLean checks into Nakatomi, have you ever been in a high rise in any part of the country or the world where they just let you up? I don't know. Like they just <laughs> he's like the guard's like, Oh yeah, yeah, just you know, go ahead. He looks up, you know, he looks up Holly, finds out that her she's going by Gennaro. He's not on any guest list. Just, yeah, come on, come on up, come on up, right? It's this, you know, high end because when you go into that building or any building in Los Angeles, you have got to either have a code, a badge, or you have to be on a list and they just kind of let him in. I think because of that movie, it started that, to be honest. Yeah, 
Is that right? <laughs> yes, I think that spurred it. So for as great as the script is, there there is some nonsensical dialogue, which I was like, I don't remember catching before. And I caught it and I'm like, so let me share with you what I think is probably like two of the stupidest lines in this film. <laughs> so McLean looks at Takagi when they're in the when, when they're in Holly's office and he goes, uh, you throw quite a party. I didn't realize they celebrated Christmas in Japan. And I was like, did he? He didn't just say that. Right. Yeah. And then Takagi's response is, we're flexible. Pearl Harbor didn't work out, so we got you some tape decks. And I was like, first of all, John, you're, you're in Los Angeles. You're in Los Angeles. And uh, yeah, there are people in Japan that actually celebrate Christmas. Like, I, I just, I, I, I didn't get that. And, and his response was idiotic. We're flexible. Pearl Harbor didn't work out, so we got you with tape decks. I, do you guys remember it that dialogue? Make sense. Yes. It doesn't make right. sense to me. Yeah, I, I was like, like, it's not Fourth he- of July or Thanksgiving. Christmas is celebrated uh, yeah. all around the world. Yeah, so I thought that was I thought that was idiotic. The other thing is, and this is sort of like sort of a misdirect by Hans, which from a script standpoint and a character standpoint is clever. But when he's like, um, they're in the elevator with Takagi going upstairs, and he's like, you know, he's kind of um, humming uh, "Oh to Joy." He looks over at Takagi and goes, "Nice suit, Jean Phillips, London. I have two myself. Rumor has it, Arafat buys his there." Now, if anybody knows Arafat, the guy had basically like the same outfit that he wore, kind of a military sort of military uniform that he wore. Hmm. He, he never, never would you see him in a sort of a, a high-end European suit. So, it, I, but I also think it was a misdirect, right? I think it was a it's sort of like a misdirect as to like who are these guys and and uh, and what are they about? And but the the mention of like John Phillips and being worn by Yasser Arafat is obviously idiotic because Arafat would never be caught dead in a in a European suit like that. And then the other thing I thought was kind of weird is. Is it protocol for like you to call in a fire and then all of a sudden they're like, oh, okay, yeah, false alarm, turn around. And then they just turn around and they don't go and mm. they don't go to the destinations. I, I think that that was probably a mistake that, 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 that they, I mean, obviously it made sense for the film. I totally get it. You know, and it, it just goes to show you, you think he's in reach of getting the help he needs, but it, it, it something always, always happens. And so I, I get the reason why, but. I don't know if that is really the protocol that a, a fire truck on the way to a call would just stop in the middle, but maybe it is. I don't know. No, I I think it's actually not. I think they have to come once. That's what I thought. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, that's what I thought. I think with the fire or the police, they have to yeah. show up to just to make sure. Exactly. And then my final one, and probably the biggest one, is Argyle deciding at the end to break through the garage gate rather than realizing while he's in there that he's trapped. That he's like, wait. Why don't you just drive through the gate? And then when he does drive through the gate, you could tell it was like whoever the production design team was. It's barely like it's barely holding up. Like he just kind of he runs through it and all of these like pipes kind of like these really thin pipes just sort of like fall real quickly. There's no force or there's it's just a one shot deal. He goes right through this really light fence or gate. And I was like, this 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 could have ended much, much sooner if you just did that at the beginning rather than just stay down there. So those are my uh, those are my cheeses for you guys, my Swiss cheeses. <laughs> gotcha. Uh, what do you got, Bill Band? Yeah, just the way the cops are portrayed in this movie. It's almost <laughs> too dumb. Like they could have just played it by the book like Hans expected it to and it would have been fine. They just made him so stupid. And then when uh, Dwayne Sheed Robinson, Paul Gleason first shows up and Powell's informing him what's going on. And the fact that 
Robinson just pushes that information aside right away. Doesn't take into account at all. And just like, well, he can be one of the terrorists and telling you false information. Like you wouldn't play it that way. You would have to take that into account. And then when Powell's like, I think he's a cop, he's like, no, he could be a bartender, which I understand that's supposed to be an in-joke because Bruce Willis used to be a bartender and it's kind of funny. But at the same time, when you have no idea what's going on, you have to take any information that you have. It could be false. It could be true, but you don't brush it aside right away because some of it does make sense. The building is locked down. There's possibly hostages on the 30th floor. And he just brushes it off like, no, that whatever you're telling me is bullshit. I'm taking over. It's like, you're just too stupid. It almost ruins those segments because of that. And that drives me up the wall. I don't know. I Yeah, I, I hear you. I, I, I thought that I, the portrayal of the FBI and, the, and, the, and for me, the yeah, they were complete sort of mockery of them that they were made a mockery of. But I just felt I just love the humor in it all. It, it just it, for me, it was just really humorous. I think. If he went that route, if they went that route, I think the film would have been, I think, a little bit too serious for its own good. Yeah, that's just my feeling on it. But I hear you. Yeah, I don't think they had to play him that dumb. And still, they still have to go by the book. And they're still, you know, they still get their asses kicked. The other thing is, and I know we love to hate Ellis, but just seeing Takagi and there was like 10 minutes of screen time, there's no way he would have hired Ellis as to be a part of his Hmm. I, I don't see that. He's that's not the, the type of person he would. Yeah. Have. I and don't it care was how a, good Ellis is at his job. He just doesn't fit into the dynamic yeah. of what the corporation does. I never thought about that. That's, that's no, no. It, valid, I mean, it, it is a point. Japanese company. It is a Japanese company. And I've worked with Japanese companies before and they're much more buttoned up. And yeah, I get it. I hear you. I mean, you'd love to hate Ellis. And I'm not saying I don't want him in it. But just when you think about him, like there's no way he'd be working for this. Yeah. Company. It, He'd never make it through probation. Ellis was too much of a um, car salesman. He was just too much of a car salesman. But man, was he fun. Yeah, I thought he was hilarious. Yeah, you'd love to hate him. All for the sake of entertainment. Correct. Yeah, I've got a couple here. Actually, within my first favorite scene, when McLean falls down the vent shaft, that's pretty tough. If you fall down a shaft and you miss the first handhold, uh, you're done. Yep. However, a little trivia here, a little behind the scenes, the scene where McLean falls down that shaft was a mistake by the stuntman who was supposed to grab the first vent as originally planned, but he slipped and continued to fall and they used the shot anyway. So it was edited together with one shot where McLean grabs the next vent. On that note about the stuntman, one of the other things too is that he is all over the fight scenes. Like, it's just clear that it's not Bruce Willis. Yes. He is just mm-hmm. like, it is, they did not do a great job covering it up. And and also just the, his body type. I think he he just came off a little bit thinner. And they, you could just tell, it's like, oh, no, it's that's not Bruce. Bruce is, uh, you know, obviously he's in a lot of the close-ups. and Especially that first fight with Tony. You can really yeah. see it. That's where yeah. I also noticed it. Yeah, exactly. But, um, yeah, he's all over this film. Also, within that uh, sequence I was describing earlier, when the terrorist Marco is on top of the table shooting downward toward McLean, why doesn't he actually shoot through the table and just shoot McLean? He keeps shooting around the table to push like McLean towards yeah, the yeah. edge. Yeah, 100%. And then McLean just shoots through the table and kills him. Yeah, that's right. Why didn't Marco just shoot through the table? <laughs> and then I'm like, why did Marco roll up onto the table in the first place? Not a great strategy. Even worse, the POV, you could see Bruce Willis, like you could see McLean. Yes. So it's like, when, what do you, what do you, why are you missing? Like we, we see what you see. So why are you missing? 
just literally shoot the shit out of everything in front of you. You will hit McLean. But he's like shooting around him. Maybe again, maybe it's just again, playing with your prey. He was just toying with him a little bit to corner him. Maybe, yeah. But uh, my final complaint would be, you know, it's it, this is tough for me because I like it, but don't like it. It's the the very, very final sequence on the ground. We get the great moment between Al Powell and John McClane, but then Carl comes back to life and it's a little bit of a step too far for me. <laughs> he was hanging by a chain by his neck in a great action sequence, and we see his face basically turn black and blue. Okay, maybe he came back to consciousness within the body bag he was being carried out in. Of course, it's a great moment because Al Powell then has the courage and strength to use his gun once again, and, and he does shoot Carl dead. But on top of all of that, they don't use Michael Kamen's original score. They borrow a piece from James Horner's score from oh, Aliens. Oh, that's right. That's right. And for me, as you gentlemen know, uh, we are all big fans of orchestral soundtracks and these wonderful film composers from the 80s. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's such a big deal for 80s films because of these wonderful thematic My, scores. Michael Kamen, which, though. He's, man, yeah. R.I.P. Michael Kamen. He yeah. was phenomenal. Phenomenal composer. Man, yeah. just to think of the films that we missed out on with him. Yeah, yeah, we lost him too soon. We and, did. Yeah, but the fact guy. that they use this piece from James Horner's score from Aliens, and it's recognizable. Funny enough, that piece of the score from Aliens is actually not in the movie Aliens, but it is, I believe, on the soundtrack. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. if you're like me and you listen to these movie soundtracks, these famous ones uh, ad nauseum like I did, Immediately, whenever I see the scene, I'm like, oh, this is the Aliens music. Yeah. <laughs> now I'm, you just took me out of the moment. I'm in a different movie all of a sudden. I still love the ending. And it cracks me up because after everything that's happened, would they really let McLean and Holly just drive off in a limo, limo uh, with Argon? Uh, don't we need some questions? I mean, just a few, few questions. I mean, although, <laughs> what's his face? Paul Gleason's character did try to ask him some, some questions. Sure, that's true. The one thing also, speaking of Jan de Bont earlier on, sorry if I'm jumping around, guys. We got to talk about the cinematography and the way sort of Los Angeles was captured, especially early yeah. on with the golden hour. Oh, yeah. It's gorgeous. Like the glow of Los Angeles. I mean, you know, we three of us live in L.A. You guys know how beautiful L.A. can get with sunsets and the sky. And I got to tell you, though, the, the, he did a really good job with capturing um, Los Angeles. Really just uh, everything from when the plane lands, getting through the airport, and then just kind of driving with Argyle to Nakatomi. That whole sequence is great. But the the glow of the sun and the warmth of it is is really great. And then, like I said, all of the action sequences, the tight corridors, right? The uh, the shafts, um, filming in the shafts, and the elevator sequences, all of that stuff. It's just really well done. It's really well done. I know that, I mean, Jan hasn't really, Jan Devon hasn't really done anything in a long time, right? I mean, I'm trying to think yeah, of what's- it's he was at the top of his game back then. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I agree with there's so many great things with the lighting, the cinematography. And I love the way yeah, that the golden hour is shot and that the fact that it's in L.A. This all takes place over one night and it's December in L.A. It's Christmas Eve. And, you know, this when you see the sun setting as McLean arrives in L.A., you're like, we know it's like four thirty, five o'clock probably. And so it makes sense, like time-wise, as far as the the length of the film over this one night. Interestingly enough, for some of the interiors, especially I believe in Takagi's office, 
more behind the scenes info here. When you see that kind of golden hour sunset out the window, that's a matte painting, actually, which I did not know earlier mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. of the exterior. So, but I bought it. I was totally yeah. like, yeah, oh, yeah. It looks like, yeah, sunset. totally. Well done. All right, let's move on to, hey, it's that actor. All right. So this segment, we spotlight a character actor you have seen in many other films, an actor making their big screen debut, or an actor that makes an uncredited cameo. It's, hey, it's that actor. Marwan, who is your choice for, hey, it's that actor? For me, it's Rand Elbush, one of the Johnsons, the younger Johnson. He was in so many films in the 80s. He hasn't actually, I think he retired from acting over 20 years ago. I think he retired from acting in 2002. He's been in a lot of films, but he was also fantastic in Robert Townsend's Hollywood Shuffle, another great film from the uh, from the 80s. But yeah, Grandel Bush was fantastic as the younger Johnson. No relation. I was in junior high, dickhead. That's one of my favorite lines. Yeah, and Jason, how many how many times have I done that to you? How many times have I done that? That's the big one. When Alexander saw the breath of his domain is another big one for you. And lastly, whenever we walk into a room and we're standing up, you'd like to yell, sit down. <laughs> one of your favorites. So, yeah, I love quoting this film with you guys. What a great, what a, what a fun film. I just can't. I mean, I could just, like I said, I, I get giddy about it. I just get giddy about it. <laughs> it's the best of times, man. Yeah, that's what, so that's my guy. That's my guy. Sorry, that's my guy. And Jason. Uh, I would like to highlight Clarence Gilliard Jr., who portrays Theo in this film. In the early 80s, he did some TV from Different Strokes to Chips to Riptide. And he was the character Sundown in Top Gun in 86. Oh, that's right. I, I know about right? that. I totally was like, of course oh, that's wow. him. Yeah, I never put that together for whatever oh, reason. Forgot about that. Me neither. Now you can. I can see it in my mind's eye. Yeah, 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 yeah. Wow. He's got a small role in Karate Kid Part 2, does more TV. He was in the film L.A. Takedown, which we've talked about on this podcast, because that was Michael Mann's film that later evolved into the film Heat. Uh, He plays a character called Mustafa Jackson. How great is that? Anyway, he was on 84 episodes of Matlock from 89 to 93. He was on uh, 196 episodes of Walker, Texas Ranger from 93 to 2001. And he was in a short called Die Hard is Back. It's not really a short. It's an action-packed commercial for Die Hard Batteries that came out in 2020. Have you guys he's seen in it? that? I saw yeah, that. Yeah. I don't remember him in that. Uh, he's in it alongside Devereaux White, who played Argyle, and Bruce Willis himself. There's another cast member who played uh, one of the terrorists. I got to watch that again. Yeah, I meant to look it up before this podcast. I forgot I about that. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I thought that was pretty cool. But uh, sadly, Clarence Gilliard Jr. did pass just recently in 2022, but... We will always know and love him as Theo. So I just wanted to highlight him. Yeah, it was funny because when I was watching this and I'm looking at all the supporting, I'm like, oh, yeah, he was in this. He was in this. And then when I got to Theo, I'm like, why was he not in anything else? And then you just rattled off like 10 things. I was like, fuck. I actually didn't know he died. Yeah, you know, I had mentioned it to Pat Duty on a road trip recently, and he like disagreed with me wholeheartedly. He's like, he's, he's not he's not dead. Because mm. I saw it in the news, and I was like, "Oh man, that's Theo." I didn't know he died, but uh, yeah, no, I didn't know over a year okay. ago. So yeah, he's got some great lines. Another just really memorable supporting character from the film. I mean, he's great. And then we have to mention Al Young stealing candy bars. <laughs> I was gonna mention that. little yes. Nestle's Crunch for Al Young. Yep, he plays Uli. We love Uli from Die Hard. He's got about two minutes of screen time in this one. 
All right. So this brings us to facts and trivia, where some fun facts or trivia we have learned about Die Hard that we could share with our audience that we haven't already talked about. You know, obviously there's like a long list of sort of A A listers that were sort of up for the role before Bruce uh, got it. But um, I think to me, one of the, the fun sequences was, or in the film, so when Hans is it, during his death sequence, the way they filmed it to get that facial reaction was McTiernan lied to him about the release time. So he was supposed to say, on three, we're going to let you go. And then they filmed it, they set it up, and then they actually released him on two. So it was like, one, two. And now Alan Wickman's thinking, on three, I'm going to go. And, and on two, they let him go. And so they got that really great facial um, reaction from him. That, to me, is one of the cooler things about doing the right thing by lying to an actor to get the right performance. Uh, I thought was really clever. I don't, like I said, there, there's a, there's probably a few things here. I mean, I'm I'm sure people can read them online, but that was one of the things that I thought was really I thought that was really fun. Yeah, that was a fun one I heard about. I only found about that one recently. I think maybe I was watching the behind the scenes when I heard about that. I had never heard that before, but it worked. It certainly sold it. Good move. Oh yeah, it's it's great. You can see a photo on in the research either on Wikipedia or another website of the rig that he's in, the harness that he's in to be dropped from the platform. And there's like an airbag beneath him. So you get that natural, that real expression on his face because he's surprised to have been dropped on two instead of three. But then they also rigged the camera uh, in a special way. Again, you can research it in order to keep him in focus as he is falling backwards. Because it's tough to keep someone uh, that's falling away from the camera in focus the entire time. They could only do it for a couple of seconds, if that. But it's cool to read about if you're into the... uh, that uh, the tech stuff, the tech aspect. But I've, I've got a few few bites here. Uh, one being that uh, the ad- this is, of course, an adaptation of the 1979 novel Nothing Lasts Forever, written by former private investigator Roderick Thorpe. Thorpe has been in, or had been inspired to write Nothing Lasts Forever by a dream he had in which armed assailants chase a man through a building. Now, Fox had adapted the book's 1966 predecessor, The Detective, for the 1968 film starring Frank Sinatra as NYPD detective Joel Leland. And they purchased the sequel rights before Nothing Lasts Forever had been written. So as Die Hard was based on this novel sequel to the detective film, the studio was contractually obligated to offer Frank Sinatra the role. Sinatra, who was 70 at the time, of course, declined. This movie could have starred Frank Sinatra. How funny if he said yes. <laughs> that sounds good. Hey, Frank, listen. Um, so we got this $35 million picture here. You'd be the lead action. A lot of running around in a uh, T-shirt, bare feet. I, you don't want to do that, do you? Uh, I don't think so. Okay, cool. Here's a million dollars not to do it. And uh, we'll right. see you later. They probably There was probably a fee. He probably got paid to not do it. Yeah, probably. It was paid handsomely. Some sort of some off off the books somewhere yeah. somehow. Uh, what do you have, Bill Bant? So Die Hard was released on July fifteenth, nineteen eighty eight, in limited release on twenty one theaters on an estimated budget of twenty eight million dollars. Die Hard would gross eighty five point two million dollars domestically. The movie would never hit number one at the box office, but would spend thirteen weeks in the top ten and would be the seventh highest grossing movie in the it U.S. Never hit number one. And did you say 21 theaters? Yeah, limited release. That's crazy talk. Yeah, I probably did one of those LA, New York yeah. slow debuts, and then I think probably came out a week later. 
Anything else for facts and trivia? Jeb Stewart began working 18-hour days at his office at Walt Disney Studios in Burbank, which left him exhausted and on the edge. After an argument with his wife, he went for a drive and saw a box in his lane, and unable to avoid it, he was forced to drive over it and discovered it to be empty. According to Stewart, he pulled over on the side of the freeway, his heart pounding. From this, Stewart conceived a central theme of the story of a man who should have apologized to his wife before a catastrophe. He returned home to reconcile with his wife and wrote 35 pages that night. To shape the McLean's relationship, Stewart also drew upon the marital problems of his peers, including divorces and ex-wives reverting to use their maiden name. As for reviews on Siskel and Ebert at the movies, they gave it a split review. Gene gave it a thumbs up and Roger gave it a thumbs down. Leonard Moulton gave it three out of four stars. Rotten Tomatoes gives it a tomato meter score of 94% and it has an IMDb rating of 8.2. The costume department had 17 undershirts in various stages of degradation on hand for Bruce Willis. I remember, yeah, I remember that. I read, I read about that. <laughs> Look, we could go on and on. There is a lot of fun facts and trivia for this movie, but for time's sake, I'm, I'm for moving on if you guys are. All right. So before we wrap things up here on this week's episode, are there any additional thoughts any of us want to share with our audience when it comes to Die Hard? I will say this much. I think Bruce Willis as John McClane, he's a little bit horny from the start. Something I picked up on. Just an additional thought. He's making eyes with the flight attendant in the beginning. He's checking out the girl in the white spandex at the airport. He's checking out the lovely ladies at the corporate party before he sees Holly. And he makes sure to get a good look at that pinup calendar near the elevator shaft. And I'm just saying, my man John McClane needs some loving. Needs some loving. You know, Chris Valenziano, our uh, incredible uh, producer, uh, writer friend, he told me, he read the book. He told me that in the book, the McClane character has an affair, actually, with the flight attendant. Oh, wow, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he read it, but uh, I didn't read it, but that that's according to uh, Mr. Valenziano. Did you, Bill, did you read it? Because Bill reads everything. Did you read it? No, I actually did not read that one. Oh, Bill reads everything. Okay. But it makes sense. I mean, you know, he's been without his wife for six months. So. Yeah. To me, the the thing about this film is, like I said, uh, we've already kind of said it. I don't think we need to kind of beat it to death, but it really is. What makes it a great action film is the great characters that really, you know, aside from the FBI and the cops, really well drawn out well-established characters that are kind of embodied by just, again, the three main leads, which is Bruce, the late, great Alan Rickman, and uh, Bonnie Bedelia, I think, would I would say are the, the three most sort of like key core characters. Just super intelligent, well-written, great performances, really well-balanced acting. I could go on and on and on, but to me, this is such a great... And and you can put... there's There's a few films in the same sort of like league as as Die Hard, I think I would put Aliens up there as well. Really well-defined characters, great supporting cast, well-directed, well-written, great scenes that are sort of are embedded within your memory forever. And that's kind of what Die Hard does. The fact that we're talking about it, the fact that I watched it again last night from beginning to end, and it was just brought back memories of my childhood, college, like I told you guys earlier. So I just really can't get enough of this film. And and the, the thing is, is I hate saying it, but they can't and they don't make films like this anymore. They really rarely make films like this anymore. I'd be hard-pressed to think of a film of this caliber, really, in the past 10, 15 years. I'd, I'd defy anyone to find an incredible action film that, that is this seminal, 
that will last as long as Die Hard. I mean, I could be wrong, but that's kind of like how I've been thinking about it. What about John Wick? Hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's just all right for me, dog. It's just all right for me. Okay. Yeah. I love the first two John Wick films. I think they're all great for, and they have a lot of merits. Uh, but for my my taste, the first two are yeah are great. But um, yeah, I mean, I've got uh, some other additional thoughts here. I was just going to say, if, would you have any shout outs or honorable mentions for any other uh, supporting cast members? I mean, we talked about Al Leong and the Huey Lewis lookalike, Dennis Habert. I for, didn't realize for whatever reason, Bill Bant, upon this rewatch, that Wilhelm von Humburg also plays he's the uh terrorist james he also plays the villain vigo in ghostbusters 2 yep i i just didn't pick that up on that mm-hmm. oh yeah I, I picked that up a long yeah a long time ago I knew i'm that sure one. you did you know what was interesting last time i watched it the, that opening scene with argyle in the limo i i think i've always overlooked that scene but i was like wow he's a really interesting character that I didn't do anything with because he kind of has that conversation with mclean in the beginning and he just kind of picks up on like he learns a lot about McLean in that conversation. And then at the very end, he's like, hey, man, are you going to have somewhere to stay? And the fact that he sticks around for him, it's like they they create a bond really fast. Mm-hmm. And and he's he's learned so much of McLean in that would it be like a 35 minute car drive from the airport. You think, yeah, it's about 35 minutes. I was like, wow. Yeah, this character's kind of overlooked because then he's just kind of stuck in the garage for the rest of the movie. And then, you know, he's the one that takes out Theo. But he's really interesting in the beginning. When you think about it, when you really watch that scene and the two of them talk, but then they don't do anything else with them. I was like, oh, yeah, that's actually a real well-written moment. Agreed. Uh, Thanks for pointing that out. And also, we get Rick Duckerman as a city engineer in this, which is great. We talked about the burbs on this Shut it down. Shut it all down. (laughs) Got a real problem here. William Atherton is Dick Thornburg. Oh, he's great. Yeah, him and him and Paul Gleason. They're just so unlikable. Oh, yeah. Two of the biggest dicks of the 80s. Yeah, they're so unlikable. And Paul Gleason's always been unlikable. Yes. Trading places. Paul Gleason I ran into uh, at LAX once. You did? Uh, I didn't talk to him, but I saw him. I was like, oh, my God. You mess with the horns. You mess with the bull. You get the horns. I was like, two months, Bender. Two months. I always remember seeing him on the sideline of a UM game in a white suit. Oh, he was there? Yeah. What was he doing at a UM game? I have no idea. It's bizarre. When we were in school? Yep. Oh, wow. You never told me that. Here's a question. When we were doing um, CAC, which is the Cinematic Arts Commission, which was sort of like the, the campus uh, organization that basically ran, ran movies, Bill and I ran that actually together um, for one year. Did you do this for Friday nights? Did, you have, did we have Die Hard on our Friday night list? I don't think so. Because when we programmed, do you remember the year we programmed? We had an incredible year, our Friday night movie. So Bill ran the Friday night because he was a projectionist. We'd have Friday night movies, which was great. And then. Which I think is why I was not there when you did that jump. Because I was. It was a Friday night? I think it was a Friday night. Because I think I was told about it afterwards. Oh, that's so why you guys were, were Yeah, you were you were jumping in the pool while I was running the, the movie. Yeah, stuff. so Bill, Bill, like I said, Bill and I ran uh, CAC, but Bill's. Uh, was also the projectionist in addition to like the the main ca- campus uh, theater, which we had great films and we, we'd get all sorts of screeners and uh, Bill ran Friday nights, which was great because it was just a great place to go and hang out and watch great films. And 
all we did was just program our favorite films. Like we were just, we had the power to program whatever we wanted. And all yep. Bill did was program anything I wanted to watch on Friday anything nights. he wanted to watch on a Friday night. Yeah. It was, it was, those were great nights, man. Those were great. The greatest days, the greatest must days. Have done die. I have to go back and look. I think you, I think you did. Yeah. I think we did. Yeah. I think you did. Right. I think I had to. It, it's gotta be, it's, we got, it, I don't know if you can find out. I mean, you'd have, you'd have to have like an old t-shirt or something. Oh, I do. You still have it. Uh-huh. Yeah. Wow. That's awesome. But that would make sense if you weren't there that that night. Yeah, yeah, you were. Yeah, you were either out somewhere or you were you were running the campus. Uh, yeah, because every once in a while, the screening rather, a bunch of you would pop over. Oh, those were great nights. Yeah, those were fun. The sit sit in for a reel for sure. Let me know what was going on. Like, hey, we're having a party at the Red Roof. Jason, did you ever go to the Friday night films? I yeah, absolutely. Well, we did Star Wars. Yeah, probably. I remember seeing. That's awesome uh, that you still have the T-shirt. I just wish I still had my uh, Fighting Amish T-shirt. Oh, Eat. that's right. Well, this has been a blast, guys. This has been so much fun. Time flew by. Yeah. Oh, Jason, you have any uh, questions before we get moving? I was just going to say, should we place a bet right now as to whether or not they even attempt to remake this film? Or how long will it be until they do? Or do you believe it's simply untouchable? No, nothing in Hollywood is untouchable. That's really a great question. I never even thought about that. I hate to say it, but my feeling is that Nothing special, right? This is, there's a few that are, right? But this one I can see being remade. Absolutely. Absolutely being remade. Yeah. Yeah. I wish it were untouchable. It should remain untouchable, but I happen to agree. Uh, and my question also is if this film were remade today, right now, who would be your John McClane? Who is our everyman hero in cinema today? And who would be your Hans Gruber? Oh, great question. Man, Jason, I didn't even think about this. Bill, can you help me out here? Because I'm off. Like I, I yeah. See, I'm. That's a great question, Jason. When he throws these out here, I should. I was going to prep you beforehand, but oh, I am so unprepared I, for I this. I didn't because I think there's one uh, clear answer. Tom Hiddleston so could play the, Hans. Who? Tom Hiddleston. Yeah, the only one I could see playing McLean would be uh, Chris Pratt. That actually is the who I was actually looking at. But my my clear answer, and I don't know if this is cynical or not or how you want to say it, but uh, the answer is no one. <laughs> the answer is nobody. Nobody can play John McClane today or Hans Gruber. I'm 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 sorry, I'm possessive of this. No, story. no, no. I, I'm with you. Benedict. <laughs> I don't want Benedict, anybody else uh, playing these roles. That's I, of course that's not true. I'm being extreme. I'm being dramatic, ladies and gentlemen. There are wonderful, brilliant actors out there that could play these roles. Benedict Cumberbatch could play Hans. I looked at yes. him as well. He's really a great actor. Love that guy. You know, if I really concentrated on who, and I should have had a, bet, a, bet, a better answer than no one could play John McClane, but I might have to go outside the box. I think it might be worth mentioning, you know, obviously we all know that Bruce Willis is kind of going through it. Yeah, is, I didn't uh, even want to. Uh, yeah, it just hurts. Yeah, it hurts sorry. I don't heart. know. If, yeah, but. Uh, but it's worth mentioning. Sure. Yeah. You know, I, I took a look at a couple of his most recent films and. I knew something was up when I started seeing these films like just popping up. I'm like, something's wrong. Something's going on in his, in his career that he's doing these films. Like somebody somebody of that caliber shouldn't really be doing these films. This guy's an A-lister. I didn't know he was ill. And uh, and then I watched I watched a couple of them and I was like, oh, no. Like you could see the the um, the stuff that they were talking about in terms of you could tell like somebody's reading him lines, like somebody's feeding him lines. It's It's really it's really quite bad and sad, actually, at the same time. But uh, yeah, no, uh, you know, it's a seminal film. I'm not as a big a fan of any of the uh, sequels. 
The one thing I will say is I think they're actually talking about a prequel. I think there might be a prequel in development. That was going to be another question of mine was what is your ranking of the Die Hard films to date? And uh, for me, it's it's the order in which they were released. Yeah. Best to worst, actually. Same here. Same here. That's exactly right. Same here. Bill, what are your thoughts? I don't know. I I think I would put the one with Justin Long a little bit higher. The free oh, really? Die Hard? Like that one? Yeah. The fourth? Yeah. Maybe, yeah, one, two, four, three, five. Okay. Two, yeah, I can respect that. Two, I liked until you found out that whole giant shootout thing was fake. That always bugged me. When they were shooting the blanks with the color-coded machine guns, yeah. Yeah. That was a little too much for me, too. I forgot about that. But yeah, that it's just a hard thing to replicate. It really, I mean, like I said, the ingredients of this film, everything from the cast, some great writing, great score by Michael Kamen, even though like there's like that, that alien insert, which was, I thought, completely unnecessary. Great cinematography. They don't make them like they used to, do they? No, and uh, this will be the last thing I say regarding thoughts and questions is that, you know, we don't have all the time in the world, unfortunately, to talk about one of our favorite movies, and we could definitely do this as a two-parter. But just in case the audience is out there listening, going, wow, you didn't mention this, that, the other thing, or this scene or that scene, we're well aware all the scenes in this movie are awesome. But a quick shout out to the uh, ginormous finale with the gunships approaching the rooftop and the giant explosion on top. And of course, McLean jumping off the rooftop uh, oh, yeah. I mean, by the hose. And then yeah. the final gunslinger shootout moments with McLean facing off with Gruber and happy trails, Hans. And then Hans falling to his death, of course. Great stunt. So just wanted to shout out the, the ending is... It's, it's all an all timer. It's a great ending. Yeah, I, literally, you could break this film up into you know ten minutes, and then just talk about the you know the ten minute sequences, and just talk about how good it is. It's really quite well pieced together. Yeah, man, I can't get enough of it. I was really just like I said, really happy uh, to to be a part of today's show, and I had a blast talking to you guys about it. I I could really talk about this film for hours and hours. It's just it's really and and then what's great too, like if I may say that you guys are covering the eighties is. You guys are covering a decade of really, I, I think of like some of the some of the films you've covered are really, really important films. And what's really great is it's good to look back on them because this is sort of a time capsule. I think you guys are creating a time capsule of films that not a lot of people see or talk about today. And it's important that we don't want film to die, right? We don't want the, the spirit of cinema, the spirit of films to die. And it's important to look back because a lot of these films that you cover, some of them were in theaters at the same time. Right. We don't have that kind of magic today. But if you lived and grew up in the 80s, like the three of us did, it'd be crazy what you'd see it during the summer at a theater, like the lineup of films. You don't really have that magic anymore. And that's why not to get too serious about your podcast, but it's important that you have this uh, podcast because it allows you guys to really talk about, again, an important decade that was important to you guys as, as, uh, as children and young adults. And that have stayed with you to all these years. And now you're talking about them as, you know, as men who have worked in the industry and are living in L.A. and, and are, you know, surrounded by the sort of the Hollywood system. But also you're seeing the transformation of how films are made. It's not special anymore for, you know, the three of us to go down to across the street where, we, you know, where campus was to the theater and just or go to the uh, the Beaumont slash Cosford and, and, you know, see films. Now it's start streaming something and it's different. It's different. And and that's okay, right? Yeah, things change, Absolutely. but it's important. It's important that you guys have this time capsule. And that's why I think this is a, a perfect podcast for the two of you. Thanks, man. Thanks for all those kind words. And man, it's been a real pleasure. Just a really 
enjoyable experience. Just to have you have you with us, man, to be able to share this with you. Thanks for coming on. But the, the pleasure and the honor was mine to be with you guys. And like I said, thanks for having me on today. I if you ever ha- if you ever want to have me back, just let me know. I'd love to be back. But I've just like I said, been looking forward to this for a long time because uh, I know you guys have a long lineup and you're always thinking ahead on your next film. So can't thank you enough for uh, for sharing this uh, uh, evening with you. Yeah, well, we're not finished though. It's rate. We got to give it ratings. Let's you know, do it. So, uh, using a five star rating system with zero stars being the worst, five being the best, and half star increments are allowed. Marwan, you picked today's movie. It's safe to assume you'll give it high marks, but will Jason and I agree? So, Marwan, what do you give Die Hard from one to five? Without any doubt and any hesitation, it, this is a solid five out of five. This is such a this is such a perfect film. Such a perfect film. All right, Jason. You know, I disagree. I disagree. I'm going to give this 10 stars. I'm going to give it 10 stars because that's what it deserves. He said five, so I don't know where you got the other five from. Oh, sorry. Five stars. Yeah, if I could give it more, I would. Uh, This, like Marwan just said, without a doubt, an all-timer every time I watch it. Guys, I'm inspired. It's invigorating. It's like watching this every man transform into a superhero and you believe it because he gets beat up. And nobody plays beat up better than Bruce Willis. You relate to it, you buy it, and once you're in, you can't keep your eyes off of every storytelling moment in this great script that has awesome action, but really genuinely funny moments and bittersweet moments as well. The setup's great. The pacing's great. The payoff is great. The movie made me a Bruce Willis fan forever. I love you, Bruce Willis, and... uh it just really boosted my passion for movies back then in 1988. I love Die Hard, and I love watching it every time. Five stars for me. <laughs> Bill? All right, I'm going to be the dick. Four and a half. What? <laughs> yeah. Wait, what? 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 The, the cops the, and the FBI? Yes, that drives me up the wall. Oh. <laughs> it, really, it really does bug That's me. such a... Oh, I didn't know I that. Know. I, I, I know. didn't know it affected you that badly. It does. I'm just... It does. Listen... I just want you to think about this. Listen, when you leave this, uh, when you leave this uh, evening, just think about this. If you go the other way, the film takes a very serious and dramatic turn and tone, and I think it changes it quite a bit. It might. I I do so, agree. With I, that. I just want you to know, like, there's some there's some levity here, and you go one way. I'm telling you, it's a, it's it's a different film. I understand what you're saying. Yeah. But, hey, look. Look. It's all good. Bill, Bill, I respect your opinion, but you're wrong. I know. I know. That's all. Oh, yeah. I I can totally understand where you're coming from, Bill. I, I like Marwan, thought the cop stuff is hilarious. But yeah, it's it. I get it. Oh, I, I hope it. that wasn't a hostage. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> how do you not? How do you not like that line? It's just perfect. Oh, I hope that wasn't a hostage. Uh, this is Agent Johnson. I'm Agent Johnson. No relation. Jason knows how I don't like dum-dums in movies. It drives me up the It's a pet peeve of mine. I was going after the lights. Yeah. <laughs> he just kind of sings it. I was in junior high, dickhead. Oh, I love that. I love that line, though. That is one of my favorites. Fucking Davi. Oh, just like fucking Saigon. It's slick. Oh, I can say that forever. It's such a hilarious line. Yeah, Marwan, thank you so much for being on the show. I'm glad that oh. we finally got you on. We've talked about you so much. Now they've uh, gotten gotten to meet you. Some random life. guy. Some random guy that they don't know. I appreciate that. That's really nice. <laughs> uh, 
Is there anything that you want to, anything you projects you have upcoming yeah. or anything that we can, you know, check you out? Have you guys plugged some of our projects or? You can actually find some of our stuff on the website. Um, we do have right. links to Overcards and Desolate and uh, Lasertown on there. All of yeah. which you direct it. Yeah. So I would uh, make sure like, you know, if there are people out there that want to take a look at some of the short form projects we did. The most recent thing I did, I recently directed a incredible singer named uh, Charles Jenkins in a music video called uh, The Soul of a Woman that is available on YouTube. And he's got it all over his platforms too. So check out Charles Jenkins, The Soul of a Woman. Um, had the pleasure of working with him and directing that music video. Great song. And, you know, the three of us, uh, we're trying to do something new. We got to make sure we, we do that. But yeah, those are the those are the films. Like I said, I, I actually look back a lot on Desolate Road and, and Laser Town because uh, they were most recent ones that we did. And Desolate Road has now been a while, but Laser Town was also a great experience, a very different kind of film that was really Jason's baby. And he he produced it, allowed me to uh, be a part of it and direct it for him. It's a special project. Some really great performances in there as well. You know, even within a kind of a short film, there's really such, such great performances with uh, with Kaz and Lacey. And then one of our favorite actors, uh, Kevin Craig West. Yeah. So he's killing it right now. I mean, yeah, he is killing it. He's doing great out there. So check out Kevin. He's man, that guy's presence on film. He really he's got to get to the next level. Like he's just got to get to the next level. I also Love want to shout guy. out on your behalf, uh, Epic Home Break-Ins, which is really well produced, well directed by yourself. Because if you hadn't already mentioned it, I just oh uh, yeah, I didn't, I didn't. Well, uh, we didn't do that together. That was a yeah, that was a separate. Um, right, right. But uh, I mean, I mean, I did remember you guys consulted. Set, you guys I mean, consulted you know, with me on everybody that. Everybody involved and and uh, just wanted to shout out as an accompl real accomplishment on your behalf. And yeah. I don't know where people can watch that. That's all on that. Vimeo on Waterwell. Okay. Yeah, you guys can check that there out there go. if you want. Check but, it out. Uh, yeah, Epic Home Break-Ins. Um, that was a really fun project, and you know, it's it's, a, it's its own commentary on really content creators, YouTubers, whatever you want to call them. And uh, yeah, so that's 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 what I have to plug. Awesome. So that about wraps it up for this week's episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. Thanks again to Marwan for joining us today. Please check out his work when you get the chance. Also, please take the time to follow, give us a review and rate us at the All 80s Movies Podcast. If you want to reach out, you can email us at all80smoviespodcast at gmail.com. Please send us your feedback, questions, or recipes to share. And you can visit us at all 80s moviespodcast.com uh, we'll be taking our holiday hiatus over the next month we'll be back in february 2024 with season four which promises to have more fantastic guests another slate of classic 80s movies and some exciting news until then from jason and myself bill bant we'd like to wish you a safe and happy holiday come out to the coast we'll get together have a few laughs thanks for staying up with us Good night, world.